This is the Political Monitor Podcast, brought to you by the Concord Monitor. In today's show, Chris Christie talks polls, Hillary Clinton dodges some questions, and we see the primary through a monitor staff photographer's eyes. I'm Clay Wirestone, a columnist and editor for The Monitor, and I'm glad to welcome political reporter Casey McDermott. Hi there, Casey. Hello. Great to be here. Good to have you here. Our politics editor, Jonathan Van Fleet, is off this week, but we'll have a special replacement guest a little later on. So according to a Monitor story published Thursday, Chris Christie told reporters in Hooksit that he wants people to stop paying so much attention to how he's doing in the polls right now, which incidentally isn't very well. So Casey, does Chris Christie have a point? Are are we paying too much attention to polls at this stage? Well, in some respects he does. Um, Just to kind of give a little bit of a context here. um, So he was asked about a recent poll that came out of a New Jersey University, Monmouth University, um, that surveyed 467 likely New Hampshire Republican voters um, in recent weeks. And that had him at about eight place uh, with about 4% of voters saying they'd support him if the election were held the day that they were asked. But a reporter uh, speaking with Christie after he visited uh, Roby's country store in Hookset um, had asked him about this. He had been asked about it, I believe, you know, in the days before by other reporters. And um, his response was effectively, you know, the obsession with polls is just counterproductive at this point. Um, And he went on to say that at this time in New Hampshire, four years ago, Herman Cain was winning. At this time in New Hampshire, eight years ago, Rudy Giuliani was winning. He said, I don't think either one of them became the Republican nominee, nor did either of them win the New Hampshire primary. Now, on those two points, he actually was not correct. Um, Mitt Romney, looking at an average of polling results from this time in 2007 and 2011, was actually ahead in New Hampshire both times. Um, So when I asked uh, Christie's campaign for clarification on that, he said that, you know, he was trying to make a broader point about national polling, actually. But setting that point aside, let's look at the rest of his quote. He was saying, you know, let's wait. This is why we campaign. Campaigns matter. You saw all these people here this morning um, and said that, you know, he's just going to keep doing what he's doing doesn't want to get too caught up in the horse, way, horse race right now because a lot can change, basically, which is what you've heard from other candidates, too. Mm-hmm. You hear you know, Mally saying that, you know, the person who's searching in June usually isn't in January. Um, and I talked to Andy Smith, who's the director of the University of New Hampshire Service Center, a little bit about this. And he said that, you know, Christie does have a point here, um, that in New Hampshire, a lot of people make up their minds at the last minute. Um that polls, you know, do serve some purpose and that they provide kind of cues to to donors. They can be used and can be influential. In fact, in, you know, if I'm a donor and I'm looking where I want to put my money, I am probably going to go for the candidate who seems at least a little bit more viable. And often polls are one of the few measures that you have to determine that. Mm -hmm. Um, But they can also kind of facilitate this, you know, this cycle where, If you're doing well in the polls, you're going to get more attention. If you get more attention, you're probably going to get more media coverage. If you get more media coverage, you're probably going to get more name recognition, and it just goes on and on. And the reverse of that is fun if you're experiencing that. 
And, you know, speaking of, of, of polling and who might be doing well, um, Ohio Governor John Kasich announced uh, his bid for the nomination relatively recently, mm-hmm. just a week or so mm-hmm. ago, but he seems to be getting some real traction now. Yeah, he's really picked up steam um, fairly quickly. Um, now, it is important to keep in mind that he has been running ads in New Hampshire for the last few weeks, started a little bit before he actually officially announced um, those ads came from his super PAC. Um, and he you know, has been kind of quietly laying the groundwork here for a campaign, but he he did. He he's up in I think you know third or fourth place in a few polls. Last I saw, unless something changed in the last you know hour or so, I think that John Kasich is gonna um, potentially be in a position to slide in there, um, which is big for him because the debate's happening in his home state of Ohio. Right, and and I mean one of the the, the knocks against John Kasich when he was announcing his bid is that he came very late to all mm-hmm. of this. He was not one of the people who'd been laying groundwork for years and years. Like this is all something that kind of kind of rolled through in the last last two or three or four months. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I heard that a little bit. I did, you know, I I heard a little of that. But then other people I would ask in in New Hampshire among kind of you know Republican circles here would say that you know he he still has time. It's not it's Oof. not out of the question that he would announce at this point, um, and that. You know he does. He does still have the potential to to have an influence on the race. So. Well, and it it seems like it's ha- it Indeed. seems like it's happening. Yeah. yeah. Now it's time for our special guest. Most people in New Hampshire have met a political candidate or five. But monitor staff photographer Elizabeth France has been following them around, taking their pictures. It's one thing to write about a rally, but it's another thing entirely to capture it visually. So Liz, let's talk a little bit about your time in the scrum. What's it like? Well, it is both routine and always different. Um, Most of the time you just show up early, you wait for somebody to come up to a podium, you take a bunch of pictures, and then you're done. But the most interesting part is trying to make that look different every time and trying to um, give our audience something something different, something that they haven't seen before, something that they can't um, experience without me. Because mm-hmm. theoretically, you're, you're, you, know, you could sometimes potentially get access that the general public might not have. Sometimes, and, and that tends to happen more with uh, smaller, low-profile pro- candidates. Um, I've been able to cover everything from a small meet-and-greet with Lindsey Graham at the Hillsborough Balloon Festival, <laughs> where it was him, where it was um, uh, Lindsey Graham, a couple of staffers, myself, and really only two other media um, photographers and videographers there. Um, and then on the flip side. It's the Hillary Clinton events that are really the, the biggest and that have the most media presence. Um, and and at the those most events, media controls, too. Yes, uh, actually, um, from security to uh, preferences is where they, where they would like you to stand. And um, when you see the candidate, which is basically when they come on stage and when they leave stage, um, nothing that usually involves... Uh, outside or getting into their car or 
um, small moments uh, before an event starts. Oh, so they actually say you can't do that? Or, or, that, or that's what you're trying to capture? No, no, it's just... I think it's probably less that they say that they can't do it and more that you, know, you don't actually see the candidate as much in between the speeches as you do with some yeah. of the lower profile ones, if that's what I think. With a lower profile candidate, um, sometimes the, the arrival and departure is part of, mm -hmm. is part of the event. Mm -hmm. right. um, and there's a lot more security with Hillary Clinton. Absolutely. So that, that kind of takes a little bit of that away. Now, you were along for a pooled event earlier this week, too, what? which was a little bit... That was probably more low-key than some of the stuff that you had shot before of Hillary of her. definitely yes um, we got to uh, go along for one off the schedule stop um, in between two public events with Hillary Clinton and um, it was uh, myself and the rest of the pool photographers and Casey as well um, we got to uh, be present when Hillary stopped at a, at a farm in Concord to do mm -hmm. some tomato shopping um. So, so, you know, you, I think you, you know, you started this at the very beginning, you know, I think that the, the real challenge for you doing, you know, making these photographs in these situations is that, you know, everyone has seen a candidate and everyone has seen a candidate talking behind, uh, you know, behind a lectern on a podium, you know, these are very familiar pictures for people in, in New Hampshire. So what are kind of ways that you try to work around that? What are, what are kind of the photographer's strategies for something like that? Yeah, well, uh, I'm definitely looking for um, little moments and interactions that happen um, when a candidate is not behind a podium. Um, so when they're, they're entering the room, when they're greeting people after an event, um, I try to be there. And then the other part of that is to just um, look at the scene from different angles around the room uh, so I can I can show people more than what um, for example a, a television crew which is more stationary um, can see of the room so uh, I'm usually the person that's in the corner or walking around and uh, I try to be in as many places as I can to see if there's something interesting or cool I think just thinking back on some of the photos that I've seen from you, Liz, so far, like some of the ones that I think are my favorites are those kind of like tiny moments that like if you blink, you might have missed them where yeah. like, you know, there was one I think from a John Kasich event a few weeks ago where he was hugging a woman who he helped to like bury her dog when he was here campaigning in 1999, 2000. Yeah, um, And like another one where I think this one was probably a little bit more obvious to everyone in attendance, but where a state representative was kind of patting Donald Trump's head to, you know, verify that his, his hair was real. So just those kind of like small moments in between the speeches, I think that you know, it's it's nice as a someone who's writing about this and has to use kind of words only to know that, you know, Liz is kind of looking out for all of these cool things that, you know, can add to the scene at an event. Yeah, a big part of what I do, and um, because this is my first uh, presidential campaign, is to learn how to anticipate things that might happen um, so that I can be in position for when something does happen. Um, and to get a little more technical, I use two different cameras, and that way, no matter what happens, I can sort of be ready 
Um, so in the situation at Donald Trump when he was talking about his hair and then suddenly I see him, you know, gesturing and asking somebody in the audience to come on stage, um, I, was, I was ready to just sort of, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I have this gut feeling that I need to be kneeling right in front of the stage for whatever is going to happen and I'm, I'm there with my camera and... And he asked her to come up on stage and kind of confirm for the audience whether or not his hair was real. And, and uh, I, I was there for it. Uh, the same thing with uh, the, the Kasich event. Um, I was just, I, I was there just sort of with my camera waiting to see if something happened. And as most of the audience um, and the television crews perhaps uh, might have been concentrating on the person with the microphone who was introducing um, Kasich, I was still uh, watching um, Kasich who was talking to this woman and and it, it seemed like they knew each other and then there was this giant hug and uh, I was able after the event to go and speak with her and and, and uh, learn a little bit about her story and how she how she knew the candidate from the past years. So it kind of helps to have a little bit of you know be a little bit of an oracle or a fortune teller to kind of being being able to figure out what's what's going to happen before it happens. Yes, yeah, so a lot of that is luck, but a lot of it is the um, the kind of routine and repetition that uh, that that does happen at these events. Um, I start to pay attention to what uh, staffers are doing so that I can try to get a feel for whether or not the candidate is going to go shake hands or whether or not they're going to go straight for the door, um, trying to figure out in ahead of time, you know, what door they're coming into, for example, uh, how long they're going to stay, how long they have to take questions. Now, when you're, uh, when you're actually at an event, um, you know, uh, taking these pictures, you know, it's clear that, you know, you're going to be shooting a lot. Yes. I mean, you're going to be, I mean, how, how many images just in general might you come back with, you know, from an event? Um, it depends. I, I try not to take that many. I did start with film as opposed to digital, so I am a little less of, um, of the type of the photographer that just sort of hits the shutter and just go, 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 go. But um Anywhere from on the on the low end at the Hillary Clinton event the other day, I actually only took about 270 photos, and on the top end, I will sometimes take um, 500. Only. Only. Only five. <laughs> Which seems like a lot. Like it, it for take, someone It takes me about half an hour to whittle that down to. Hopefully, only about 20 from there I can whittle it down to the gallery like, that you see um, on the monitor website. Do you feel like choosing them sometimes that it's difficult for you to be like, oh man, like this is great, but I know that I only, you know, that we only really want to put up like X number of photos? Like, have there been any that like have ended up on the digital cutting room floor that you would have liked to have included? Yeah, definitely. Um, with, with, Online galleries, though, I don't have to, um, uh, the phrase that uh, we jokingly throw around sometimes is, kill your babies. Um, but definitely with, with the paper, that happens almost on a, a daily basis at, at this rate. If there's only room for one or two photos in the paper, then I do have to pick and choose. And often, because my end goal, our end goal, is to tell the best story, um, my favorite photo from the day may not be the best photo to um, 
to bring the, the photo, to bring the package, the whole package of the paper um, together. And in that situation, I will, um, you know, try to play it high in the gallery or um, you will find it on my Instagram account. <laughs> which, which is? <laughs> which is? Uh, which is Concord Monitor and also Liz Bronx. Um, so, so here's so you know, in kind of talking about these, um, you know, kind of the, the the mechanics of all this, you know, you can take up to you know, you know, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, or more photos of an event. Do you, when you are driving back then from the event to the monitor building or to to home, I guess sometimes you do some photo editing there. Um, do you have a suspicion, like, do you know kind of what the photos are at that point? Or, or, or does the editing process surprise you? Um, it's a little bit of both, but most of the time, as I'm taking a photo, I have an idea of whether or not it is going to be the one, um, hopefully. Um, or at the very least, it is, it is a, a series of photos, maybe a, um, a sequence of five or six photos that I know I need to come back to because there might be something there. Um, on occasion, there are times when I'll be going through a take of photos and I'll find something that I, I that didn't initially stick out to me. Um, and those are always pleasant surprises. Uh, a little detail that is actually the, the Kasich photo that we were talking before. Um, when I took photos of, of the two of them hugging, um, I did not notice immediately, for example, that uh, both of his feet were off of the floor which was a nice little detail that I found later. Um, and then I guess, uh, you know, just kind of, of, of wrapping up here a little bit, um, what um, kind of what, what reactions do you get when you're out uh, there with your, your cameras and you're, you know, taking, taking photos of the candidates and of the, and of the audience, presumably? I mean, do, do people just, just see you as another uh, kind of, news media person do you do you get her much of a reaction from folks or are you just kind of doing your your thing for the most part I'm just kind of doing my thing and, and because many of the events that I've gone to are, are bigger events where there are lots of other media both um, broadcast and other still photographers for print outlets um, I am just kind of just one of the other people uh, but here in New Hampshire, because uh, the, the, the public here tends to be very involved in these events, I have started to notice some of the same people appearing at events, and they have started to notice me. Um, <laughs> um, and and uh, will often come up and uh, introduce themselves on occasion and, and ask, you know, what, what outlet I'm from, uh, mostly because they're curious, because they have seen me at other events, so... That has started to happen, and I'm sure it will happen more and more as the year goes on. There's definitely kind of a familiar rotating cast of characters that you see at, at a lot of the events because people are either, you know, curious and just want to hear from a lot of people or are really still kind of shopping around. Mm -hmm. So, Anything you're looking forward to, to taking pictures of here in the next couple of weeks, Liz? Well, I'm not quite sure who's going to be here and... Um, uh, you know, we'll have to wait till schedules come out, but I have pretty much photographed all of the candidates except Jim Webb, 
Ben Carson, Mike Huckabee, and Marco Rubio. So I'm sure I will get them by the end of the primary season. But they're on my radar. (laughs) Okay. Well, Liz, thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. Turning to Democratic primary frontrunner Hillary Clinton, uh, she's been visiting New Hampshire recently and answering some tough questions. Other tough questions, well, she hasn't so much been answering them. So, Casey, uh, you've been following Clinton some this week, so so tell us a little bit more. So, um, Hillary Clinton was back for her second New Hampshire town hall on Tuesday, um, and that was held in Nashua. Um, she took a question from one voter who asked her for yes or no, um, are you in favor of the Keystone XL pipeline? And Clinton essentially said in response that she couldn't give this voter an answer at this point and cited um, just generally when she was talking to him and again when she was talking to the media later that she's in kind of a unique position in, in her eyes in that when she was Secretary of State, she had some involvement in this. She didn't want to overstep Secretary Kerry and President Obama on this, wanted to wait for them to kind of make a decision on where they're going to go with this. Um, she told the the voter that, you know, if it's if it's not decided by the time she assumes the presidency, then she can give him an answer, um, but wasn't ready to necessarily weigh in uh, definitively at this point. Mm-hmm. And... And then you had some, you had some uh, a follow up mm-hmm. for her on that too. I did, yeah. And I mean, this is something that she was asked. This ended up being kind of the big national story to come out of the event on Tuesday. And several other reporters at this point had asked her about it. Um, I think there was a follow up question after my question. Um, I, I was uh, given a, a question during the press um, availability and had asked, you know, basically that. When candidates are on the campaign trail in New Hampshire, they're often asked to weigh in on issues that could still be up for consideration by an administration. So, you know, keeping that in mind and keeping in mind her original explanation, are there any other issues where she would, you know, be hesitant to weigh in in the same way? And she she didn't identify any others, but said that, you know, she can't necessarily rule that out because she doesn't know what else is going to come up. Um, so I think that, you know, that response and the response that she gave earlier was not necessarily satisfactory to a lot of people. Um, you're seeing some pushback even from some of her Democratic rivals on this. Martin O'Malley and Bernie Sanders are um, kind of staking out their own positions on this. And I think trying to be a little bit more specific to contrast that with where Clinton is. Um, and I, I, I didn't get a chance to talk to the voter to catch him before he left, but I saw reporting elsewhere that the voter who asked the question didn't really feel like that was a substantial answer either. Well, I mean, it's certainly environmental policy and kind of green issues are one area where, you know, kind of the other Democratic primary mm-hmm. challengers are able to put some space between mm-hmm. themselves and Clinton, mm-hmm. probably. Well, themselves and Clinton, but also themselves and the current administration, where Clinton is, you know... There can we can debate whether or not she should weigh in, but she is correct in stating that she is in a unique position in this particular field, and that she was for a time a part of the current administration. So mm-hmm. that does, you know, perhaps place some pressure or some special considerations 
on her candidacy in that, you know, the other candidates who don't have as close of ties or as, you know, intimate and involvement in the administration's policies are more easily able to distance themselves from those. Sure. Um, and you also wrote a, a story this week talking a little bit about um, Hillary Clinton's kind of the way that she was talking about gender mm -hmm. and, the, and the, the role that gender mm -hmm. was, was playing in the race. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, um, I actually had read this really interesting book earlier this year um, written by Rebecca Traister, um, a journalist that was called Big Girls Don't Cry. And it was an analysis of the role of gender broadly, not just with regard to Hillary Clinton, um, but with other candidates, other candidates' wives, um, Sarah Palin, in the 2008 election. So that was kind of in the back of my head on Tuesday. Um, and I had kind of picked up on this a little bit during earlier visits, but the, the conventional wisdom is that Hillary Clinton and her advisors and her team were more hesitant to kind of invoke the historic nature of her candidacy um, in the 2008 cycle and were less explicit about, you know, calling upon her as a as a female candidate, using that to their benefit. Um, and this time around, you're seeing a, a, a pretty different approach. So um, a, a young girl actually gave her kind of a, a perfect opening for this at the end of the town hall. It was the 11th and final question. And a 10-year-old um, named Emily Wall had raised her hand and Clinton called on her. And she said, you know, I, I would like to shake the hand of the first woman president of the United States, which, of course, you can imagine went over <laughs> spectacularly in the room. Everyone clapped. Hillary Clinton called her up. She gave her a hug. It's been, you know, used extensively by the campaign as this great photo op in the days since. Um, but after Clinton called her up, she, you know, turned to the audience and said something to the effect of, you know, I'm not asking you to vote for me because I'm a woman. I'm asking you to vote for me on my merits. But then added one of those is that I'm a woman. So um, you can definitely see how she's leveraging that in, in this campaign. Now, one of the other things this time around that's interesting is that, of course, Clinton is not the only woman who's in the race. You also have Carly Fiorina on the Republican side, who is, you know, while perhaps not as... Uh, obvious in invoking gender as as Clinton has been um, hasn't shied away for, from it. She's, you know, been pretty um, ready to stand up for herself if she thinks that she's being treated unfairly in the media. She got into a little bit of a back and forth with Katie Couric when she was asked if she was just seeking out a vice presidential nomination. And I spoke with um, a local Republican activist here who said that that was something that she really thought was not... Um, appropriate for Couric to be asking that she would never ask that of a man. Um, and um, this particular activist, um, her name's Jan Glassman, and she's the head of a of the New Hampshire arm of this organization that seeks to kind of promote and encourage more conservative women to get active in politics. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that she was telling me is that, you know, she thinks it's important for people to not, and for the media to not kind of make women into this single issue demographic that, you know, journalists should not be so ready to only paint women as voters who care about, you know, abortion or issues like that. And um, so it's definitely, you know, the the gender card, for lack of a better term, is definitely 
playing on both sides. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it'll be really interesting to see how that um, unfolds. Well, and of course, Carly Fiorina has not been shy about, you know, perhaps not necessarily invoking gender uh, specifically, but comparing herself to Hillary Clinton yeah, it's is actually, one of her like key points. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of implicit in her candidacy that she is, you know, by running, she's saying, and, and the Republican Party is kind of saying, like, whoa, you know, Democrats aren't the only ones who can appeal to women. You know, there are plenty of conservative women. Um, I'm going to be a representative for them. Um, and she also, in speaking to... Um, I believe it was a Christian Science Monitor breakfast earlier this year, had said that basically, you know, if she ends up facing Hillary Clinton, then that's going to kind of neutralize the idea that Clinton can play up her gender as much as she would if she were facing any of the uh, 15, 16 men who are running for the Republican nomination. So, Mm -hmm. Um, and then also not not uh, not leaving the uh, the Democratic side of things just yet. We've got um, Bernie Sanders is kind of doing something a little different, right? Mm-hmm. This this weekend he's doing some some uh, house parties, mm-hmm. but but are th- this is this the digital house party thing that's happening? I think it is. Yeah. Um, so Bernie Sanders had a um, kind of a day of action um, that was held Wednesday night, or excuse me, a, a night of action. I guess is more appropriate, but. Um, simultaneously across the country, he um, addressed groups of supporters who were gathered in these kind of intimate house parties in New Hampshire, all across the country, um, via a kind of like a, a live stream video setup. Um, and the goal of this was kind of twofold. It was, you know, to for him to speak to them, for him to get them fired up, but also from a kind of you know, a more practical organizational grassroots standpoint, like this is really the campaign laying the groundwork to put up a, um, you know, a strong ground game um, in the in the months ahead. So my understanding is that these parties were not just like, oh, let's all get together in a living room and talk about how great Bernie Sanders is and listen to him talk about all the things that we really care about. It was okay, how can we translate this into action on the campaign trail? So finally this week, there has been a lot of attention paid in New Hampshire to um, some ongoing controversy around Planned Parenthood. And also a little bit of a fracas uh, about the state's new drug czar, John Wozniak. So, Casey, let's talk a little bit about what's going on uh, with these stories. Um, So let's take Planned Parenthood first. Um, Much has been reported on these undercover videos that have emerged um, by largely from an anti-abortion organization called the Center for Medical Progress. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically, the videos show... um, officials with Planned Parenthood discussing rather candidly um, the process by which they help to procure um, aborted fetal organs and fetal tissue for research purposes. Um, I'm not going to get into the details of that. Sure. Um, but so those those videos have ignited really a, a conversation at a national level and a debate over funding for Planned Parenthood, but also have reignited a debate that we've seen play out here 
um, a number of times in New Hampshire. And it's actually rather timely because the executive council is set to vote on a Planned Parenthood contract, um, potentially as early as its meeting this coming week. Um, so there was a, a protest that was organized as part of a nationwide um, series of protests around the country, and that was hosted by uh, New Hampshire Right to Life in partnership with Pro-Life Future, Students for Life for America, and Cornerstone Action. And um, basically just talking to um, the, the president of New Hampshire Right to Life, she was saying that, you know, if this video doesn't spur debate, she's not really sure what what will, just because it, it has provoked kind of such a visceral reaction um, from a lot of people on, on both sides of the debate. Mm -hmm. You've seen people who and politicians who, who have identified as pro-choice saying that the, the tone of the discussion or, you know, some of the elements of it did raise questions or were perhaps unsettling. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you do have Planned Parenthood saying that they, they're not breaking any laws, that this is a, a perfectly routine legal procedure, um, that the, the families that decide to do this are doing so with full consent. Right. Um, but it's, it's still provoked a lot of kind of congressional inquiries and, and things like that um, and has, has elicited a lot of discussion and mm -hmm. um, concern here. Well, and I think what's what's most interesting uh, about it, and I think this is something that's that's pointed out by uh, Planned Parenthood of Northern New England, kind of in response to this. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, one of the ultimate, you know, possibly ironies of this situation mm -hmm. is that um, this service mm -hmm. is not offered in New Hampshire, right. or right. or in or in Northern New England. So, regardless of the fact that other places where it happens, it, it, it is done with the woman's consent. Mm -hmm. She has to sign forms agreeing that it's that it's okay to, to, to donate this mm -hmm. tissue. In New Hampshire, that's not even an option. Right. That's not even even something that's offered. Um, so, uh, you know exactly how that mm -hmm. plays in then to you know kind of what mm -hmm. the executive council decides. Mm -hmm. We'll have to see. Right. It's also, I mean, just in terms of kind of separating out the the certain parts of the debate here, when we're looking at public funding for Planned Parenthood as well, um, abortions, according to the, the organization here, are not paid for um, through public funds. They're paid for through private donations or um, by patients. Um, and it's money that's specifically been set aside for yeah. that purpose. The federal so. funds, I, I believe, just as a matter of law, cannot be used Except to, in special circumstances. Right, rape, incest, yeah. and theft of the life of the mother, yeah. Um, I think there was, oh, there was, there was one other point about, oh, yes. Um, but the important thing to remember about the Executive Council and Planned Parenthood uh, kind of regardless of what is decided within the next couple of weeks, is that this is largely a pass-through contract mm -hmm. in the sense that these are federal funds that the federal government basically decides where to send. And the executive council is more or less giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down on where they go. Um, I would. Uh, it was after the 2010 elections, um, so in 2011, I believe, um, there the executive council defunded Planned Parenthood mm -hmm. then, but what happened was is that the federal contract, mm -hmm. which was basically all of the money that would have been awarded, went to Planned Parenthood anyway. Mm -hmm. the, the federal government made that decision to just send the money to them directly. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, some people might have been, been, un, been unhappy about that, but there wasn't any legal action taken or anything, and it was the federal, federal government's decision. Mm -hmm. So 
So even if the executive council were to decide against it this time, it's entirely possible that the federal government would still award the grant. Yeah, per, I mean, perhaps um, I, I actually, I, I don't think anyone in the public has seen the actual contract for, for this yet because it usually isn't released um, until several days before the executive council. So in terms of the level of federal versus state funding, um, I'm not sure exactly what the breakdown is there, but you're entirely correct in that the federal government did kind of usurp the executive council last time around. Um, now, there's a lot of debate at the federal level now that may yes. get in the way of that, um, also because of these videos. Um, but there's some yeah. speculation that it may shut down the government because the people are trying. Some legislators are attempting to attach it to the to the budget, mm -hmm. the defunding to the budget. So, um, which will make it an exciting August or September. Um, and then uh, moving on to, to the drug czar, which is, this is a new position. Mm -hmm. um, it was created with some grant funding. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a guy named John Wozniak took the, took the position. And he spent basically the last six months, you know, kind of putting together this proposal mm -hmm. of like basically 22 bullet points, um, looking at just general ways to, to tackle the state's substance abuse mm -hmm. epi epidemic. Mm -hmm. um, but that wasn't kind of the end of it. Mm -hmm. Right. So he was appointed, I believe, in January. Um, and the goal of this broadly was to have kind of someone who would be the big picture kind of person to strategize, look at how the state as a whole could bring different parts together, because there are a lot of different moving parts whenever um, you look at how to address substance misuse. Um, so uh, there had been a series of stories that came out in, in recent weeks and interviews um, with people, largely police chiefs of, of kind of major cities in the, the state, um, who had said that they had little to no contact with him, that they didn't really know, you know who he was. Um, this added on top of kind of existing criticism that the, um, the Republican Party and other Republican legislators had been throwing at Governor Hassan and her administration for not doing enough on the issue of substance abuse. So this was, you know, just something that added even more fuel to that. Um, so my colleague Jeremy Blackman had talked to the Concord Police Chief Brad Osgood earlier this week, and um, he had said in a radio interview that he only learned recently that the state even had a drug czar, um, and that, you know, since then, uh, the two had had gotten connected and had a meeting scheduled and Osgood said, you know, he's not here to condemn or praise him um, that, you know, if his job is to come up with a plan or, or recommendations, then, you know, he did a pretty good job. He came out recently with a list of different recommendations that the state is supposed to do. Um, so his contract basically was up for approval. Um, Earlier this week, uh, a representative, Andy Sanborn, or excuse me, Senator Andy Sanborn, had actually called for his resignation initially, in light of the, um, you know, him not being as effective as he could be, according to Sanborn and others. Um, but ultimately, they they approved his position. He uh, is funded through December, um, and. Uh, Sanborn um, did ultimately vote Wednesday to accept um, the grant money that would help to fund his position, saying that it, it, it's an import, important one, but he wants more accountability there. And and it's also important to, to note that one of the reasons why there was this this other vote by the, uh, um, the by the fiscal committee was that 
because there is no state budget right. now, um, this was originally a, a position that it started off with some grant money, but with the understanding that it would eventually become mm -hmm. a something paid for by state money, um, the budget was vetoed by Governor Hassan, and so we're now in kind of a several-month uh, kind of interim period yep. where the position would go dark if, if, if more grant money wasn't accepted to fund, fund it. Yep. So, okay, well, looking ahead, Casey, what are, what are you looking, looking forward to this next week? I am looking forward to a candidate forum that will be held um, in Manchester at St. Anselm College uh, by the union leader, and it will be broadcast live on C-SPAN and other networks. And this was basically, um, longtime listeners might remember us talking about this on earlier episodes, where the union leader created this with other early state papers as a way to kind of counteract the um, what they viewed as a nationalization of the primary process because of the Fox News debate. Um, so I'll be watching for that, um, and I also will be watching for that Fox News debate, which will happen on Friday of next week. And I think uh, the attention of a lot of people in the newsroom will be be turned to these debates, and, mm -hmm. and people around New Hampshire, too, mm -hmm. because it'll be interesting to see everyone, or many, mm -hmm. ca many candidates, perhaps not mm -hmm. all of them, uh, on stage at the same time. Yeah, we've seen the, uh, the candidates on the same stage back-to-back, -back, but not necessarily all on stage at once. So that should certainly make for interesting television. Yeah, if nothing else. So Casey, thanks so much for talking to us this week. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with this podcast by subscribing through iTunes or Stitcher or just visiting the Political Monitor online, which can be found at politics.conqueredmonitor.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.